So on June 2nd, this article in NPR came out. It was written by a journalist named Tilda Wilson, and the headline is, a Utah school district has removed the Bible from some school's shelves. And here's how the article starts. It says, frustrated with book challenges and bans in their school district, a parent in the Utah decided to submit a complaint of their own about the Bible. The Davis School District took the parents' objection seriously, placing the Bible under review. This week, the district officially decided to remove the religious text from elementary and middle school libraries for containing vulgarity and violence. The ban will take effect immediately, with the Bibles being removed from the bookshelves even before summer vacation. The parents' complaint, which gained national attention when it was reported in March, cites Utah's 2022 law banning any books containing pornographic or indecent material. The statement calls the Bible one of the most sex-ridden books around and includes an attachment of the passages from the, Bibli- from the Bible that they believe violate the law. End quote. Now, whether you're offended or concerned or chuckling mildly to yourself because of just what a snarky move, mom, that's pretty cool. Uh, But whatever your thought is about the article, sometimes we have to admit that church people, maybe none of us, but church people in general, try and take the edge off of the sharpness of the Bible. You have to admit the Bible is challenging. And sometimes we take this this text that is in Hebrews called like as sharp as a two-edged sword, and we, 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 we use euphemisms like, oh no, it's the word of God, it's holy scripture, it's life's instruction manual, it's God's love letter, or it's just the good book. And sometimes we try and take those edges off like physically, like Zoe's going to put uh, an image on here. Uh, this first image that we have is um, the, the classic Bible cover with the verse taken out of context. So in this one, we've got, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, which is a great quote. It's just that it's to the Israelites who are in captivity because of their idolatry. And I'm sure he has great plans for you too, white middle-class America. No, but like, I'm not sure that that's what that exactly means. Then, then, there, then there's the second one here. Um, this is the customized uh, carrier. In this image, some lucky person named Haley has the, her Pinterest on there. And this accessory would be for, I, I'm not, maybe old bathroom tile or some cute outfit or whatever. But whatever is in this carrying case screams to us, I'm classic, cute, and harmless. But just in case your Bible gets cold, there's this knitted sweater Bible cover, uh, which communicates that whatever's inside this cover is as warm and cuddly as grandma's hugs. And then finally, there's my favorite cover, the leopard, or is it jaguar? I don't know, but whatever it is, it is saying, I'm cute, a giraffe? Yeah, have you seen those things headbutt? Um, I'm cute, but look out, I might bite. Notice, of course, the instrument of death, Roman torture in neon as a accessory. Okay, I, thank you, Zoe. I, I am being a little bit jaded and snarky. I, I admit that. I admit that. Um, but the truth is that we often find ways to sanitize the Bible um, when, in fact, it is messy, and if you read it cover to cover, you will be offended. It has, it's an equal opportunity offender. You'll find something 
to be offended about. Um, it's difficult to understand sometimes. And sometimes, like, as your pastor, I'm saying there's permission to think this. Like, it's sometimes it's hard to read. Like, it's not the most enjoyable. It's not like you're, you know, your fourth read through Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings or something. Like, it's, it's a challenge. It's weird in spots. And it makes sense to me that the Bible is weird. Because if the Bible is God's word to us, and I firmly believe that it is God's word to us, then it has to meet human beings where we actually live. Where we actually live. We don't live in a world where, where, where there's nice grandma sweaters fixing everything, nor do we live in a world where out-of-context platitudes fix our deepest problems. We don't live in that world. We live in a world of stunning beauty and tragic pain. We live in a world where human beings have the capability of being so kind that they can move us to tears. And in that same world, human beings can treat each other so miserably that it leads us to war. The Psalms and Proverbs and Prophets and Narratives, Letters and Gospels, they all meet us in the messy intersection of God and humanity, of creation and heaven. And it's truly a clash of cultures and kingdoms when we read the Bible. And I think it's the, it's the Bible's ability to meet us in the mess, rather it's God's willingness to meet us in the mess of life that makes the Bible worth reading because it has something to say for everyone in every situation. So let's get messy this evening because this evening our text is a bizarre story that we could easily skip over or just spiritualize, make, create some sort of spiritualized meaning out of it. But rather than do those things, let's read it together. And let's ask ourselves, as we're listening to it, what is it that Mark, the author, is trying to show us about Jesus? What is it that Jesus is trying to show us in his words and in his deeds? Lord, as we come to your word in the gospel of Mark this evening, I thank you that it's not cut and dry and sanitized, but it's messy and meets us in our own mess. But I also admit that it's weird. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the word you have for us in this time and this place. I'm going to invite you, just because it's uh, 20 verses, to stand if you're able and kind of engage with this. Um, it's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version, so it's not the same as your pew Bible. Or you can just listen and try and imagine the scene. Sometimes that's a fun thing to do with a, a, a vivid Bible story like this one. So, just a little recap. Jesus is in a boat. He's in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm. That was the last sermon. And then he calmed that storm. And now they're still in the boat. And it says that they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he was dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. 
because he had been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he's, he, he's gashing himself with stones and, and, and crying out and seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, shouting with a loud voice and he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he sent them out of the country. Or, and, and, he, and he began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, send us over to the swine so that we can enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what all had happened. And when they came, they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had just had the legion in him. They became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might not let him, or that he, he would let him come follow Jesus. But Jesus said to the man, hey, go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. Everyone was amazed. Thank you. You may be seated. What a wild story. What a wild story. The opening scene catches our attention. At the end of Mark 4, of course, Jesus and his disciples had left a Jewish town, uh, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. We don't know exactly where they were headed back in chapter 4. Uh, Jesus just says, get in the boat, and we'll go to the other side. But here, in chapter 5, we're told that Jesus had taken them to this other part of the country called the Gerasenes. And this is in an area called the Decapolis, which is a a word that means 10 cities or 10 towns. And this was a Gentile, a non-Jewish area of Palestine. And, and just if you're hearing this story, as Mark's one of his original hearers, the story about Jesus, it would just be so shocking to them because here's a man who was born a Jew, who had Jewish disciples, and he's taking them on purpose to the Decapolis, a Gentile region. See, in that world, it was so separated into categories of clean and unclean, profane and kosher, 
And going to the land of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, it was a recipe for encountering uh, unclean things, a way to defile yourself. Certain things were more unclean than others, but just to name a few, here are some of the more unclean things a person could encounter. Things like dead stuff, graveyards, pigs, any pork-related item, graves and demons, Gentile towns and cities, just to name a few. And so in this story, we basically have all the worst stuff that you could do to defile yourself. And for some reason, Jesus intentionally takes his band of Jewish disciples to one of the most unclean places you can imagine. Now, as soon as they hit the shore, this guy comes running up to them, and we're told that from the very beginning that this is a person who lives in the tombs. Uh, We have graves in the Pacific Northwest that we dig down usually, but in this arid region, they would typically have uh, tombs that were carved into stone, and so you could um, go inside, you could duck down and be in them. Now, even Gentile people would never live in a tomb. I mean, they, had, they thought all kinds of crazy demonic forces were in those tombs, and so um, it was a perfect place if you're hiding out and you didn't care, or if you're demon-possessed, to go hang out and find some shelter. That's exactly what's happening here. The story kind of reminds me of, of certain f- uh, styles of filmmaking, uh, kind of like, I don't know if you remember, like Pulp Fiction or something, where it begins at the end, and you've got this big scene, right? So Jesus comes up to the boat, the demon guy comes right up to him and says, what do you want with us, right? And then it flashes back and begins to give you more backstory. And, and, and so we almost get a second telling, right? Uh, the, we learn that the man has been bound with shackles and chains, but do to his demonic possession, he has some kind of superhuman strength. He can break these iron bonds and chains. Nobody could subdue him, the text tells us. And and he would spend his days tormented, cutting himself with stones and, and screaming and living among the tombs. After this flashback, we get a second telling of the encounter with Jesus, but this time it has more details. The demon-possessed man sees Jesus from afar, we're told, and then he, he runs out to meet Jesus. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, by God, don't torment me. What is going on here? What is this guy even on about? Why is this story in the Bible? I think, I think on the surface level, We should not overlook the fact that Jesus, God incarnate, King of the Jews, Israel's Messiah, Jesus intentionally goes to a place and to a people that most Jewish people would have written off as unredeemable, unholy, ungodly, and evil. If you remember in the previous story, uh, when Jesus was on his way to this Gentile territory, he and his disciples encounter a storm in the Sea of Galilee. And you may recall that the way that storm is described in the Bible, it's almost more than a storm. It's almost like personified evil itself. And and when Jesus calms the storm, he doesn't just say like, Uh, be still, he says, shut up, basically. He uses the same exact phrase he used earlier in Mark's gospel when he casts out demons. 
It's almost as if Jesus' mission to go to the Gentile side of the lake is being, uh, trying to be resisted by evil. And Jesus, it's almost an exorcism when he tells the sea to be still. Now why? Why would demons or evil care if Jesus leaves Israel and goes over to Gentile territory? Well, I think because it's one thing for God to be the God of the land of Israel, those are his people, but if God were to get loose out of his boundaries, if God were to start spreading his reign and his rule in places and among people that were traditionally thought to have been given over to idols and to the Satan, well, then we have a territory war on our hands. The kingdom of God has come near. Satan's territory is being taken back. So on one level, we see the, uh, the gospel of God on display in the story and the mere fact that God loves these people who many would assume are unreachable, unlovable, and ungodly, which is just such good news. Like, I know we always want to go to these deeper meetings because it's interesting, but that is a fantastic, if that's all I preach today, that is the gospel. It's such good news. If this man living with thousands of demons inside of him who lives among graves and next to pigs, if such a man is able to be transformed by Jesus, <laughs> then salvation is possible for you and me too. And every stinking person we will ever meet. Amen? That's good news. So be encouraged. But as is also often the case with these biblical texts, there are more layers. And so let's have fun and go a little bit deeper. On another level, this story is all about Jesus overcoming oppression. You know, at the time that this story takes place, the Roman Empire has spread as far south as Egypt and as far north as Great Britain is today. I mean, this is just a massive, massive empire. And everywhere they went, they enslaved people and annexed their land, and demanded taxation without representation, which really makes Americans mad. And, and, and we're, they're just seen as general oppressors, right? And, and what's interesting is that this story about this man with the demons and everything, it's, it's full of weird terminology. It doesn't read like a normal exorcism story. In fact, it's full of language that has empire overtones and military overtones. So, for example, when Jesus asks the name of the demon who's inside this man, we don't get a name. We get a title. He says, legion, for we are many. Now, a legion is a technical term. You know what's interesting is it's a Latin term. So here's this guy speaking in Greek, normally, like the conversation's going on in Greek, and then he pulls out this Latinism, which is a Roman thing. My name is, in Latin, my name is legion, which, you know, is a designation for a unit of troops that is, on paper, 5,600 people. But historians tell us that in this area and in this time, they almost, they had big recruiting problems. They never had 5,600-person legions. They were between two and 4,000 people, the average size. So military term. Then you have the fact that when Jesus casts out these demons, we don't have the standard formula that he uses when he casts out other demons. Like, he usually says, be, be quiet, which is, I've told you a million times, because it's kind of funny. In Greek, it's like, shut up. He tells them to shut up and to get out, and he just, like, uses his authority. But what's interesting is with this story with these demons is that in your English Bible, it probably says he gave them permission. 
to go into the swine or permission to, to get out of the man. In Greek, it's literally he dismissed them, which is exactly what a commanding officer says to a unit of troops. You're dismissed. And finally, we have the legion of demons entering into what the Bible tells us uh, multiple occasions is a herd of swine. Well, the interesting thing is that I'm no farmer, um, but groups of pigs are not called a herd, right? They're called, they're called a passel. And so, you know who what was called a herd? Rookie Roman soldiers who are undisciplined. Their commanding officer would call you herd. And you know what was on the Roman battalion, the Roman legion's um, standard in the Palestine area was the image of a pig, a boar. So isn't that interesting? All of these military overtones on this story. So Jesus goes into a Gentile land, just and just like the Jewish area of Palestine, the same is true for this Decapolis area. It's all under Roman occupation. And he dismisses this legion of demons like an unruly herd of Roman rookie soldiers who end up drowning in the sea. Now, the Jews and Gentiles, they didn't have much in common, but one thing they agreed upon, their common enemy was the Roman Empire. And in the Jewish scriptures, the story of Egypt is one of the most important, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the story of the Exodus is one of the most important narratives in, in, in their history, in their religious identity. And in that story that we heard earlier, uh, our, uh, the Hebrew people had been oppressed by Egypt, enslaved into forced labor. God hears their cries, and he delivers them. And in that story, they pass through water, and the Egyptian military oppressors are drowned in the sea. In this story, Jesus and his disciples pass over the water, they encounter an oppressor, and the enemies are drowned into the sea. So on the surface, right, we, it seems like two completely different stories, because in the Exodus story, you have an actual mad king, you have actual physical slavery, you have actual people oppressed who escape and get away. In this story with the man with the demons, you have a spiritual oppression, and then the, you know, the demons are cast out and they're drowned in the sea. So it seems like one is really like historical, uh, political, and the other one is historical, spiritual. They seem like different things, but, but the Exodus story was never merely read as only a political drama. Behind every one of the ten plagues to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the madness of the Egyptian army, there is a very real subplot that the human Egyptian agents are under the influence of dark spiritual forces. Yes, Jews and Gentiles in the first century were all hoping for deliverance from Roman oppression, and yes, we should always, always stand against oppression. But evil empires and broken structures of society and deranged dictators and leaders, there is a spiritual element that seeks to kill and to destroy and to distort people who are made in God's image. So at the second level, this story uh, is to show that Jesus is God over these spiritual forces of oppression. And that, that's also very good news. And then there's a third layer. 
I promise this is my last layer. I think at its heart, this story is about Jesus delivering a pitiful human being, a man who is made in God's image and then distorted by evil and loneliness. We never even learn this man's name. And I wonder if that might be somewhat intentional because in some way, all of us can relate to this man. Here's a man who's out of control. He is enslaved by dark forces. He's unable to contend with them. And sadly, human solutions for this guy fall flat and short, as is far too often the case when we encounter people who are different, who are struggling, we end up as societies pushing them further to the margin. And in this story, the townspeople ironically take a man who's already enslaved by demonic forces and they shackle him up and try and chain him up and keep him out of town to preserve their status quo. What Jesus does for this man is a microcosm of what he came to do for every single one of us. He came to lead us through the waters of death and into a better exodus, an ultimate exodus. The exodus from sin and death, the exodus from spiritual oppression and the grip of Satan, the accuser who plays on our insecurities and our dysfunction and our trauma to make us feel less than human. That's what the evil one does. That's what Jesus came to rescue us from. That's the ultimate exodus. Without Jesus, you and I, we are in shackles to various degrees, but with all the same outcome. That outcome is distortion of our God-given image and death. That's the outcome. And Jesus comes to deliver this man enslaved and to defeat the enemy, and he does the same thing for you, for me. Unfortunately, the story also tells the truth that not everyone wants to receive the liberation of Jesus' ultimate exodus. Jesus is gracious and powerful to save us, but you know, salvation is not just a slip of paper or a new passport or some, some stamp on your forehead that says, all right, everything's going to be okay now. Like, the salvation of Jesus is the undoing of ways of thinking, it's the undoing of worldviews and political structures and whole economies that are in opposition to God's way of seeing the world. That makes waves in everybody's life. Jesus came into this Gentile territory and delivered a man who was grateful to be free of his extreme oppression, but the townspeople weren't thrilled about it. They were impressed. They were even terrified by the power of one who could cast out these demons. But he also, Jesus, also disrupted their way of life. Economically, they lost thousands of pigs, small fortune. Politically, this Jew had come doing God-sized things. Who wants to follow this Jew in a Gentile land? Ah, well, get out of here. And in the end, they would rather stick to the status quo then risk the shakeup of having a God like Jesus around. And so they ask him to leave. 
And so Jesus, God incarnate, the one who came to save us, is rejected just a few chapters ago in Israel by his own people. Now he's rejected by a whole town of people in Gentile territory. And it's just as the Apostle John wrote in the first chapter when he says that as many as received him, though, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. People born not of human initiative, but by receiving the love and grace of God through Jesus. So the people send Jesus away, but now there's this weird part of the story where this man who was delivered says, hey, I really want to follow you. Can I get in the boat and go back with you? I just want to be around you, which sounds like a very natural response to Jesus. But Jesus actually says, stay here. Stay with your people. Jesus is not denying that the man can be a disciple. He's just saying that not everyone's vocation is to be one of the apostles, to be one of the witnesses. These guys that he's got in his boat that he's traveling around with, they're the ones who are authorized to teach the church to bear witness to the words and ways of Jesus. It might be like if you started following Jesus today, right? Like for the first time, uh, you, you don't have to like quit your day job and become a pastor or go to seminary or something like that. Like you can follow Jesus in your own walk of life, right? And, and instead, so Jesus tells this man to stay rooted in community, and to tell them of all the wonderful things that God has done for him. And, and probably a far better witness to his own people in his own context, people who saw the transformation, right? Probably a much better witness there than following Jesus into Jewish territory as a Gentile and trying to have anyone listen to him there. This is one of those stories that I think would make just a fantastic cinematic spinoff. Our culture, it's like every few years, there's this the regurgitation of a new like supernatural thriller or horror movie with d demonic possession. I mean, it's always in there. Uh, and we love pi period pieces. <laughs> we just love period pieces. I don't know. This, this has it all. This needs like some romance. But you know, Hollywood, they would just write it in. It'd be some stupid side love story thing. But anyway. Um, but besides being a fun film, like what does this possibly, what, what do we take away from, from the film? And maybe, maybe you're just like, oh, that's just what I needed to hear already and God's working on your heart, that's great. But if not, I just got three different ways that you might think about this throughout the week to, to sort of engage with the text uh, as we go. And, and so the first thing to consider is just reflect, don't skip over like the fact that Jesus pursues us this much. The God who has gone to one of the most unclean places to rescue an individual is the same Jesus who has gone to great lengths to rescue you and every person you'll ever meet. He's the same Jesus who humbled himself by becoming human, who gave himself in death, who is now uh, continuing to reach out to us through his spirit. How does it make you feel to be loved that much? How does it make you feel that he is for you and will never give up on you, no matter how you feel or the, the level of your faith? Man, if you could just like sit with that this week, maybe that's the only thing. I mean, that is, that is really significant. 
The second thing to consider, if you want more, uh, is, is, is prayer. Um, listen, like our world's pretty broken. It's every generation is pretty broken. Um, and I, I hear a lot. I see a lot. Sometimes I feel a lot. Um, the anxiety that people feel about the political world or the economic world, uh, the anger, the polarization. And sometimes even um, I pick up on a sort of uh, arrogance or, or pride that, our, that the political party I'm a part of is better than that other one, or, uh, or that my, my way of seeing the political landscape is superior to others, and my candidate is the, the lesser of two evils. And, so, and in none of those things, being anxious, angry, arrogant, none of those things are really going to help change the world. And I think one of the things that as, as, as followers of Jesus we need to reckon with is that not only Daniel and some of the weirder prophets, uh, can I say that, uh, and Revelation, um, but Jesus himself believed and functioned as though there are real spiritual forces of good and evil behind political fronts and behind leaders and personalities. And we're just, I'll just say it blankly to myself and to you, like, we're not doing our job right as followers of Jesus if we're not engaging in prayer about these political issues, economic issues, um, issues of violence, social issues. Because we're never merely dealing with human beings. It's, our best ideas are never going to be enough to save us, right? Think well, vote well, all of that stuff. Yes, 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 yes but also be in prayer because there's stuff going on in the background and the only one with the power to change that is the Lord Jesus. And finally, I just just consider like what is Jesus what has Jesus done for you in you through you. Only you have access to that story, only you have access to the context that you live in. Who in your world might need to know about Jesus and his work in your life? Like in your home, in your circle of friends, in your place of work? I don't know. Uh, this is not a license to be weird or to be annoying or to try and shoehorn Jesus. People don't even use shoehorns anymore, do they? I always use that term. But like to try and force Jesus conversations where they're not wanted. That's not what this is about. But I tell you what, the spirit is always at work in people's lives. And sometimes... The Spirit gives you a prompt that says, you know, maybe this person needs to hear an encouraging word of how Jesus has worked in your life. That, that's a powerful witness. When's the last time you told anyone, even people in your own household, about what Jesus has done in your life? I'm guilty of that. I don't, I don't do that enough. So yeah, ask me later. I'm going to tell you some cool Jesus stories about me. Anyway, that's all I got. A weird story, but I think there's a lot of takeaway. There's a lot of power in this, and it's because, man, Jesus, the hero of the story, is just so good. And so, Lord, I thank you. Um, I thank you that you didn't edit this one out, as strange as it is. I thank you that it's so surprisingly practical and good news for us, even today in the 21st century. I pray that your goodness and loving kindness would take deep root in our hearts. That we would believe 
that you are for us, that we would trust you to, to move the, the spiritual mountains that we cannot see uh, behind the evils of our world, but they've got to be there, and you are the Lord who is able. Oh Lord, thank you for uh, being active in our lives, for transforming us and forever reforming us. And help us, Lord, to sense when that is an appropriate thing to talk about and to share with other people.